0: Having us stand and honor the reading of our scripture focus this morning with enthusiasm and focus. So let's stand. It's one simple verse, but you know me better than to know that it's only going to be one verse, right? You know me better than that. But this is from Hebrews chapter 2. So we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll simply read verse 1. Verse 1 says this Therefore, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You may be seated. And this is actually the first command in the book of Hebrews, and why? Why is that? Um, Anytime you see a therefore, what do you do in Scripture? You always look to see what came before it, right? So chapter 1 of Hebrews came before this, obviously. And it is, simply put, the pedigree of our Lord Jesus. And um, to start us off, I'm going to read this to to you all, and then we'll pray and get started in the major lesson. Why this lesson about drift? First of all, if you pay attention to what the pastor says, it's on his mind and his heart every year at this time. It's a repetitive need that we have. We're all subject to drift, particularly in the summer because of our culture. And I always bring this up in Sunday school too. They probably get tired of it, but anyway. Um, Hebrews says this in chapter 1, "...long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature." And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he was, he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation that 's the therefore from verse two I mean chapter two verse one so let 's pray together and then we 'll get started with today 's message and so um Father God, we come together today with our hearts and minds unified and focused on these things of primary importance. What we have heard here this morning, this is what we must not drift away from. We must pay much closer attention to it. You sent your son to speak to us personally. The heir of all things, the creator of all the world, the radiance of your glory, the exact one, the identical one to the Father, God himself, the sustainer of all life, all creation. He sustains with no such thing as effort. The one who completed our atonement, the perfect sacrifice, the Father's right hand of power and majesty over the angels. We have all the proof here that God never spoke to any of them this way, only you. You are the one whose throne is forever, the one who commands And embodies righteousness, the one who is three times holy and cannot tolerate evil in your presence. You are the one in whom the Father is well pleased and has been given holy anointing by the Father himself. You're the one who created the very heavens and all of the earth and you will outlast all of it as it concludes. And you remain unaged, unworn, the eternal one, the unchanging one the headship of all angels at God's right hand of authority in you. You're the one to whom all of his enemies will submit and bow to. You're the one who reconciles all things. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to how we conduct our lives in Christ and how seriously we take our calling to be here because you're the Lord of the Sabbath, and it's the Sabbath, the best day of the week, in my opinion. And we come together now to discuss these things as a family. And I pray that, uh, that you would richly bless, that you would empty me of myself. I am not worthy to bring this message, but with the joy and enthusiasm I submit myself to be a pencil in your hand today. Set me aside And speak to us through your word and through this message. It's in your name, I pray. Amen. All right. So I want to, so we get on the same page, let's define our terminology a little bit first. So with regards to the word drift, you can define it a couple of different ways, right? You can call drift what it means generally, and that is, you know, passively allowing other forces to carry you wherever they want to while you're distracted or sometimes secretly approving of it, right? But how is it usually expressed spiritually? How do we use it from a spiritual perspective? How do we define it? And I would submit to you that it is the slow removal of ourselves from the influence of God and His people. Now, as you probably have observed over the years, most professing Christians who turn from the faith do so this way. Not not suddenly. It's usually a slow slide. Um, and so I want to, uh, I, I do this every year with my class. I issue them what I call the summertime refrigerator magnet challenge. And it's a quote from John Piper. And I'll issue the same challenge to you all. Um, Piper said this. He said, Jesus Christ is refreshing flight from him into Christless leisure makes the soul parched at first. It may feel like freedom and fun to skimp on prayer and neglect the word, but then we pay shallowness, powerlessness, vulnerability to sin, preoccupation with trifles, superficial relationships, and a frightening loss of interest in worship and the things of the spirit. And, um, I would I would put out there too in addition to this thought and it's true it's it's been that way for a long long time unfortunately that you know the body of Christ has to be reminded not to drift away from your first love because there's some patterns that can play out there's some logical conclusions that are predictable and the result can be that There's a lot of risk when we get out of sync with our normal patterns of worship, attendance and prayer and study. And we, you know, we're all susceptible to natural drift from God if we're not careful. And so I would ask this question so you can analyze yourself, your heart, your motives, how you feel. And the question is, whenever you go on vacation or you have to miss church, do you do so with a sense of dread or are you blissfully unaware of it, right? Pastors see it and are acutely familiar and aware all the time. All the time. You look back at the life of John Owen and he said this. He said, And truly many a good word is preached, yet we see such little fruit resulting. And the reason for this is that some, when they hear it, pay no further notice to it but drift away from it. And he references Hebrews 2.1. And the word slips out while we are putting our affections on worldly things, and it it very quickly leaves that heart that gives it so little welcome. Recall the scriptural basis for this and why are each one of us susceptible to this. We are human beings on this side of eternity. We are all vulnerable to this, and the reason comes from Galatians 5.17. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. So if you take away the discipline of purposeful, dedicated worship and devotion, the flesh will win this battle by default and lead us into drift. So you have to be careful. Just think about all the examples there are in Scripture that show this. What about what happened to the Israelites, when they were outside the spiritual leadership of Moses, even for a short period of time, scripture is full of this. It's in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Nehemiah and all these other areas of scripture. And so the results are that spiritual drift can give birth to apathy and being disgruntled. And we're all vulnerable to this. You know, cynicism takes over individuals It can affect your whole family. And then it affects the entire church body. Um, and dissatisfaction can take over. And then every little thing that you used to enjoy, you start criticizing, nitpicking, complaining about. We're all vulnerable to that. And that pattern has been seen repetitively. It, it, can, it can be observed a lot in the end of every summer, like Pastor Nick said. People take a break from worship and attendance and the discipline of the Word, but it's not confined to just summer, right? It can be any time. I like this dose of reality given to us by Chris Lungard, who wrote The Enemy Within. This is another commonality that's true for all of us. He said, I think this book should be required reading. It's so good. He says, the deceitfulness of the flesh says, you ought to pray, so Pray. You ought to tithe, so tithe. Now you've done your duty, so go and do what you want. And so you have to fight against the routine of just going through the motions. That's what Israel did in so many examples from the Old Testament. It led them right into rebellion. You know, how many times do you see examples of Israel's rebellion, right? And so I want to ask you this, like, what would happen to our lives if God dealt with and treated us the way that we sometimes casually deal with him, right? What would happen? Well, in Amos chapter 5, you see, this is astounding to me. This is mind-blowing. Basically, Israel had 40 years, 40 years, to appropriately sacrifice and worship God. What did they do? They drifted away from him, and they made, among many other things for themselves the star God, the little G God, to idolize. And so what was God's response? What did he do? If you recall, he turned the day of the Lord to darkness and sent them into further exile, more than what they had. And then, in that area of Scripture, I I like these because it's a great visual. It says, you know, I fled from a lion, ran into a bear, then got bitten by a snake. So it goes worse to worse to worse. That's the result of the rebellion. So this morning, I feel like we can talk candidly as a family about this and right the ship, right? Because it's the natural tendency of all of us, all of us, to drift away from God, whether we are or or are not on vacation in the summertime. And so think about these things. Take me to the Word of God and show me where it says that there are any part-time positions available in the Kingdom of Jesus. He doesn't want you part-time. He wants all of you. Now, this is <laughs> this is hilarious. But I was thinking about this. Like one of my pet peeves is when it rains, <laughs> like it is now. I want to know where does it say in Scripture. If I shall send rain, thy church parking lot may be half full on the Sabbath. That's just, maybe that's just me. I don't know. But I see that sometimes, man, and I, I just don't understand it. I can't reconcile the mind that and the heart that says, Well, it's raining. I guess I'll stay home from church today. It makes no sense to me because of what we just read. Think about the pedigree of our Lord Jesus. And then think about how we use obstacles like that to keep us away. Um, It never says, go on vacation and cease to place God in the honored first position in your life. By the way, if you're in Christ, it's not your life. You were bought with a significant price. And so it's very plain, as we read, that Christ is supreme over angels, all created beings, beings, all of creation. And the Word doesn't give us an allowance to Have any idols of any kind, angels or whatever you want, take his place of honor. So we have a fantastic opportunity to take a time out this morning and review and rewrite our future. And it's what I like to call the opportunity of awareness. This is crucial, the opportunity of awareness because a lot of times we we put it on autopilot and just go through the motions like Israel did right but we have a chance for repentance and a chance to break these strongholds and patterns in our life before they become a much larger problem and i always say like you know the only well not the only but the major reference i have is like from medicine right so objective awareness is about 90% of overcoming anything. If you know it, you can really overcome it. So otherwise we can remain blind. So, you know, no one that I know of wants, wants to have a part-time Christ in their life. You know, sometimes we create a lopsided relationship. So I ask you these two, these two situations. Is it better to allow ignorance to give birth to arrogance in our spiritual walk, or is it better to have the full assurance of faith and hold fast to it? Paul dealt with this—you know—a large part of the New Testament. He was dealing with drift, was he not? I mean, think about it. All the chapters that you see in the New Testament, Paul ordinarily had to deal with drift to some degree. In First 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-four he says this to them. It's very serious. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, be ashamed of it. So he's always saying to the Corinthian church, your ignorance has given birth to arrogance and you have drifted away and you know nothing. What's the better walk is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, works not criticism and cynicism. But to stir up one another to love and good words, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, however, now it puts you in danger. See, there's a cost. Here's a cost. Your new awareness now gives birth to accountability before God. You know these things. You see the difference. And now you're accountable because Hebrews goes on, verses 26 and 27 It says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. So, in other words, you know the truth now, you continue in that pattern every year or every month, whatever the case may be, your protection's gone and you become, again, an enemy of God and so we have an opportunity for a reprise here. We're going to do an autopsy. See, that's another medical term. We're going to do an autopsy. Autopsy is is detailed and it's elegant and it's it leaves nothing un, uncovered. So we're going to do an autopsy on this, our tendency to drift, but we'll learn it together, right? Most of these principles come out of Sinclair Ferguson's book, Maturity. We've been studying this in Sunday school, and he he makes some great, great points. It's, it's like a litter of puppies that this drift gives birth to. And we're only going to do four, but there's a bunch of others, trust me. The first thing that he points out to us that starts this is concentration loss. That's the great starting point of drift. In Hebrews 5.11, it says this, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So the listeners have a hard time understanding because they can't concentrate. They've drifted off. And it's spiritual quicksand. Much to say, hard to understand, since you're no longer really in a position to hear the truth. And this, is the, this references the inability to fix the heart and mind on Christ and make him the chief object of devotion and attention, right? You have to remain focused. Our lives are filled to the brim with distractions, right? just Sometimes I tell people, just take a pen and start at the top of the wall and list all the things that you have to process in a day. Unlike a hundred years ago, you know, a hundred years ago, you might have two or three probably, But now there's about 10,000 things a day that I have to process mentally. We are drowning in distraction. And so I have to say this and be honest about it. Inability to focus like this is a sign of spiritual immaturity, not growing in Christ, okay? And we can be engrossed more in personal interest to the point where it takes place of renewing our mind in the word, which should be our first love, right? And if it goes on, like it says, it makes one dull of hearing, hearing and understanding. And that is, oddly enough, the very cure for what's going on. The word, staying in the word, abiding in Christ, that promotes concentration in and of itself. The second thing that comes in this pattern of drift is poor appetite. And this is why drift takes root in the first place. Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 13 gives a warning about this. It's a warning against apostasy. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he's a child, again, he says, again, you need this. You know, so it's not like it's a a brand new thing. And when he says unskilled in the word of righteousness, it means to put yourself in a position of being more vulnerable, to drift, to be defenseless to it basically. You don't even know how to fight unless you have a hunger to learn and let that lead you to biblical truth. And he points out solid food, spiritual food is for the adult. Can't be digested by those. Can't be understood. Can't be implemented. Can't be acted on. If you're an infant in your spiritual life and in spiritual matters, it leads logically to a sustaining of infant behavior and arrested spiritual development. So even if you read the truth, you may not understand it. This requires consistent discipline and an appetite for the word is what drives it. And so given that, you have to ask the question, well, what has taken place? What has taken the place of my appetite for the things of God? What are your true appetites? You have to be brutally objective with yourself to admit these things and and the way that we rationalize them and we'll have more to say as we go and we have a very wide latitude in regards to how we conduct our life what we do with our time matters of personal conviction but you ask yourself these questions are they always edifying do they magnify and honor the glory of God and and make a personal list and prioritize these things um Sinclair Ferguson says this, The person whose only focus is, there's nothing wrong with it, will remain self-centered, living according to the principles of the flesh. At very best, there will be a babe in Christ, dominated by inner needs and desires rather than by the life-giving word of the gospel and the other-directed life of the Spirit of Christ. So poor spiritual appetite is, is actually a form of spiritual cheating. In this regard, so so decreased concentration, poor appetite, and that logically segues to having a discernment deficit. And this is this is biblically true and logical. It's the result of not having a true appetite. You're not going to be able to understand. Like I said, even if you read it, Hebrews five fourteen says this. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What does it say? Constant practice. Constant practice. Not part-time, not once in a while. Um, So growing in biblical and accurate, mature spiritual discernment is an essential element in your spiritual maturity. You are not called to just stay in place. You, in Christ are going to be irresistibly drawn and shaped into the image of Christ. And that is not going to let you stand still. And so that's the reality of it. And if we want to stand in our daily life and serve the Lord, we have to allow discernment to temper our Christian character. And when we drift and our concentration is poor and our appetite decreases, we cannot hope. To understand God's Word, even when we read it, like I said, it takes true-hearted devotion, lots of work, prayer, worship, and being authentic in our desire to understand the deeper things of God. What is worse is that we can so easily be led astray this way when we cannot tell what is biblically true, you know, because the world is filled with false teaching and temptation and... Um, it can really, really take over our lives, right? The deeper result is partly illustrated by this warning from the first part of Hebrews 13, 9. It says, it reminds us, do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. That's the risk. So you can already see, like, I've, I've taken a walk pretty deep into Hebrews. And this is a common theme, even for the writer of Hebrews, addressing the drift of God's people It happens. It's reality. We have to admit it and then repent of it and make a concerted effort to turn away from it. And so there's a heavy emphasis here on not being led away by man made rules and regulations and what sounds like intellectually plausible but unbiblical teachings. Not having discernment makes every smooth sounding logical thing sound like the truth. Even our own legalism that we make up may not be consistent with Scripture. And it's not. Spiritual discernment is not just judging what's good and evil. That's relatively easy, right? It has a lot more information than that that goes along with it, right? Um, Again, Sinclair Ferguson said, a regular diet of biblical teaching helps to develop in us an instinctive wisdom that is Scripture-based. If you know the Word, that becomes a part of you. It's like muscle memory, right? And thus discernment protects us from the super-spiritual teaching that attributes its own wisdom to God. So you hear the hyper-religious teaching that attributes its wisdom to God, but is nowhere found in Scripture, right? Paul reminds us of this in First Timothy 4. Verses 6 through 8, it, it, you know these words. Train yourself for godliness. Godliness is of value in every way. And he, he compares it to bodily training, which has some but lesser value, right? So we see the drift has decreased concentration, decreased appetite, decreased discernment. And where does that logically conclude? The fourth area is worship worship. Weakness, And that's the final common pathway of drift that opens the floodgate of sin and apostasy, right? And so I want us to always think about this. You will catch yourself, if you're self-aware, you'll catch yourself doing this or thinking about it or sliding into it. But I want you to be aware, be very, very aware Of the wall that you have to get through in order to fully experience drift. There's a wall there that you have to climb or go under, go around or go through. And the wall was constructed by Jesus himself. He brings it to our attention in Mark 12.30. He says this, and you know these words. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is sin when you disregard that command when you allow your worship to become anemic and weak because worship is the apex of all spiritual experience Charles Spurgeon said for the Christian every Lord's day is to be a celebration of the resurrection of Christ and I agree and I like I said I mean Sunday is the best day it should be the best day in your heart you should Be in a posture of, I can't wait to Sunday. I can't wait to that day to come. If not, check yourself and see how you've drifted in this direction, right? Because worship really is the true barometer of your character and maturity in Christ. It really is. And your understanding of who God really is and who we are in Christ, it's not found in your emotions. It's not found in your intellect or your desire to learn something new all the time. It's not there. It's not measured in your spiritual gifts that God has given you. It's measured by your desire for the presence and power of God. And again, I can't reiterate enough how this is not a new issue. Much of the New Testament is devoted to addressing drift. And I'll read this. It was a quote from a sermon David Clarkson preached. At John Owen's funeral, and he was talking about John Owen. He said it was his care and endeavor to prevent or cure spiritual decays in his own flock. You know, and John Owen himself called the drift the plague of Christians. Keep in mind, he was very familiar. You know, this was in the 1600s. The plague was still popping up a little bit here and there. And so I would submit that to our shame, we overwork our pastors with things that we should attend to and the result is that we probably miss out on higher things of God as a result we miss out on drawing closer to Christ we miss out on the opportunity for our pastor and and you see this in the word like i said and you see it in the in the great figures of our faith you see they had to spend a lot of their time, an inordinate amount of their time, correcting the flock back away from drift. If they didn't have to do that, if our pastor didn't have to do that, what else could we do with that time, right? It was was amazing to think about that, to get away from all the energy spent with correcting sin and, like, I know... The pastors and elders dread the fall to come because it's usually set, spent in matters of church discipline. And it's, in a sense, it's completely unnecessary. It's immature and it's embarrassing. But it's nothing new. It's, it's the result of our human nature taking the, the higher position in our lives. So I want to give you a sobering illustration. I want to give you a reminder. And we just recently saw this in... Um, men's Bible study, but where in the word of God is there a better sobering illustration by example of the power, magnitude, and horrific result of unrestrained spiritual drift than in the life of David, right? I don't think there's a better one anywhere. So walk with me through this and take note of how this played out. Constantly ask yourself this question, is my pride so big as to make me think that that could never happen to me? This is mostly from that book by R. Kent Hughes, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. So, as a way of reminder, I'll say this David was at the pinnacle of his brilliant life. He was the king who was a passionate lover of God, who displayed immense integrity and courage. He was a poet, a born leader a uniter, one whose character and conduct was seemingly beyond reproach. He was a man who God sought out to be prince over his people because he was of his own heart. But David took a vacation from his duties as king. It was spring, and he should have been with his army. He drifted. He drifted away from God. And so, you know, The thing that let that part of what let that in was that he had previously indulged in what he must have thought was the personal conviction that according to the culture of this day, of his day, he was allowed to have many wives and concubines. But that was him overriding the standards for Hebrews king Hebrew kings laid out in Deuteronomy. He broke the rules. You know, he gave himself a pass. And this way opened the door for relaxation, decreased concentration on the things of God. You see how that works. Relaxation, decreased concentration, no appetite, no discernment, lack of worship. And his personal indulgence led him away from the discipline and the truth of God. So having had this poor appetite, sensuality took took the place of the truth. And so just as an aside too, I want to point out that undoubtedly undoubtedly the enemy knew that was David's major weakness and so it was exploited but with a willingness David allowed it to happen it was ultimately him he gave into it and so having drifted away from God he was no longer able to discern what was right he saw Bathsheba he should have turned away right there way of escape He declined it. His servants warned him. They said, this is the wife of Uriah. And he turned away. He should have listened and repented, turned away, going back to his duties. And so God's promise of always providing a way out of temptation was willfully ignored here. And so with this forgetfulness of God given fuel by what he truly desired instead, he developed a rationalization To get what his flesh desired and justified, he launched fully into pushing worship of God and holiness out of the way and placing his desires on the throne of his heart instead. His discernment was lost and he ceased to worship. And so what fell out of this? You know the story, but it's it's really deep if you analyze it. And how did it bottom out? So he committed adultery with Bathsheba, got her pregnant sent for her husband, tried to trick him into being with her in order to cover his sin and make everyone think that the child was Uriah's. Then when Uriah's honor prevented him from doing that, even when David got him drunk, David sent him back to Joab with his own death warrant by his own hand. And recall that Uriah was from a Hittite background. They worshiped multiple gods, but he worshiped the one true God of Israel. And Bathsheba was Jewish. Joab's honor, the general, required him to obey the king and not question it. So not only did David have Uriah killed, but also many of his finest warriors too. Scripture doesn't say how many. It could have been up to 30 of his elite warriors he killed because he sent them up to the front lines. Then he withdrew, but it says many were killed besides Uriah. And so not only that, but David then tried to pitchfork the blame onto Joab. You know, he said, if it comes up, the question is, why did you let them get so close to the wall when you knew the arrows would reach them there? And so once David found out that Uriah was dead, he wasted no time in concluding the scheme he had designed. He sent for Bathsheba, made her his wife. And what what did that do to her? What was the appropriate period of mourning that she was supposed to have once her husband was dead? He overrode that completely. He robbed her of her duty and all to try and cover his sin. And this must have shamed her tremendously, even much more greatly, and killed her reputation among the women. Imagine how the women must have talked about her and the things they must have said about her. And it shamed her and killed her reputation. It defiled tradition. It spat on the memory of Uriah. David didn't care at that point. He was blinded to God's ways. So this is the pattern. Decreased concentration, poor appetite for the things of God, increased appetite for the things of the flesh. Discernment goes away and worship goes away. And the consequences that fell out of this was David ended up breaking each of the Ten Commandments. You can walk your way through it. His baby died. His daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon, who was then killed by Absalom, her full brother, who then led a rebellion against David. And like R. Kent Hughes says, David's reign lost the smile of God. His throne never regained its former stability. So grace and blessing were lost for David's reign as king, But you can see that there was relief. There was repentance. This is a big example just to show you and illustrate where it can lead. If you have drift, you forget who Christ is. Every one of us is subject to this. It can come out this way. Um, Don't sit there and think for a minute that you're the unicorn that's immune to it. You take your eye off. Other things will, will flood in and then you know, bad things start to happen. So is there relief for us? Was David forgiven? Did he repent? Just read the Psalms. Yes, he did. Psalm 51 in particular. Um, And so I want to challenge you all, challenge all of us, me too, you know, at the end of this summer and every day of each week, how are we going to check ourselves objectively and guard against, Your untrustworthy heart. Your heart is untrustworthy, right? Are you going to be like David and pitchfork your sin onto the church and the church leadership or own it and repent, turn away from it? What do we do when the Holy Spirit brings an awareness of drift to our hearts and minds? That's the question, right? What are you going to do? Where does our hope lie? Passive, part-time Christianity versus active, full-time Christianity Um, John Piper says this in a a longer quote. He says, That is the point here. There's no standing still. The life of this world is not a lake. It's a river. And it is flowing downward to destruction. If you do not listen earnestly to Jesus and consider him daily and fix your eyes on him hourly, then you will not stand still. You will go backward. You will float by. Drifting is a deadly thing in the Christian life. And the remedy to it, according to Hebrews 2.1, is pay close attention to what you have heard. That is, consider what God is saying in His Son, Jesus. Fix your eyes on what God is saying and doing in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is not a hard stroke to learn so that we can swim against the stream of sin and indifference. The only thing that keeps us from swimming like this is our sinful desire to float with other interests. But let us not complain that God has given us a hard job. Listen, consider, fix the eyes. This is not what you would call a hard job description. It is not a job description. It is a solemn invitation to be satisfied in Jesus so that we do not get lured downstream by deceitful desires. He adds this, and this is true, and this gives us hope. An encouragement, because we all drift. We all will. We're not immune to it. He says, the mark of the true child of God is that he does not drift for long. So take that to heart. Be encouraged and be aware that this is a real thing that we contend with. It's shocking when you analyze Scripture and you see how much writing is devoted to re-correcting this idea of drift. It is shocking, and, it, and it's, a, it's an awareness that we should all have because we're not immune to it just because we live in this modern age, and it's, hey, it's us after all, you know. We're not immune to it. In a lot of ways, we're even more vulnerable to it than anybody else because we have so many potential distractions. Um, there's so much more to say about this And we may get to it at a later time. But I think you get the idea. What I want to communicate is be aware. Be aware. Awareness. That's your best weapon. Awareness. If you're aware, you will constantly guard your heart against it, okay? Um, At this point, I want to talk about uh, just briefly. You can laugh when I say briefly, right? You can laugh. It's all right. Um, I just want to by extension of an invitation before we conclude to to address the only two... You know, there's only two conditions of humanity. There's only two. Those that are lost, those that are saved, those are the only two conditions of humanity. And so, today, of all days, I want to address those that are not in Christ first. And so... If none of what I've said makes sense, I would offer that we review and consider the closing doctrinal statements from Jonathan Edwards from his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Interestingly, interestingly this shows you how times have changed. This was required reading for me in like 11th grade English in high school, in public school. Can you believe it? I can, but it's It's crazy. I didn't appreciate it. I mocked it back then, you know, thought it was silly. But here's some points. If you're not in Christ, I want you to have an awareness today of exactly who you are and where you are. Jonathan Edwards said this, God has the power to cast you into hell at any moment. And no human being has the power to resist him. God's divine justice absolutely requires infinite punishment of sins. And I will add what you've heard me say before, previously. He has never forgiven one's sin, and his wrath against it is either satisfied in Christ or the perpetrator is deservedly cast into hell away from his presence. That's the brutal reality of living in God's world, because it is his world. Another point that Edwards made you are already right now under a sentence of condemnation to hell the anger and wrath of god is expressed in the torments of hell listed in his word and they are bare they're so bad you can hardly put words under it and then this at whatever time god allows it the devil stands ready to claim you as his own that's a shocking truthful revelation The foundations of carnal man are the very seeds of the torments of hellfire. Only God's restraining grace modulates them from breaking out worse than they already do. You can take no security from your presently being alive. This can change in one second. Trust me, I know this. All your efforts and rationalizations and fantasies about escaping hell while still rejecting Christ... And remaining wicked do not and cannot secure your escape from this destiny. God has not sworn by himself, made a covenant with the triune Godhead or promised, nor is he under any obligation to keep any natural man out of hell for one moment. Sobering words, brutal truth straight from the word of God. What to do? You have to awaken to these truths. Consider the fearful danger that you're in. If you're not in Christ, please come to him today. It is the wrath of the infinite God that you're toying with and not taking seriously. You're right now exposed to the fierceness of his wrath. It pleased him. Keep this in mind. It pleased him to kill his own son to punish sins. Do you think for a nanosecond that he would spare you when it pleased him to kill his own son? We're not that big. If you remain outside of Christ, God will inflict wrath in you without pity. This is from Ezra 8.18. He will not feel sorry for you. If that is your destiny and you reject this truth, no one's going to feel sorry for you. And God will inflict his wrath on you in order to display his holy character in the same manner that through Christ he shows how excellent his love is for his glory. He must He must do that. So he has to display his wrath to show his holy character. This is why people say in the world, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why would God allow blah, blah, blah? You know, he has to display his glory. And his wrath is everlasting. There's going to be no playing poker with my friends in hell kind of scenario. Uh, The world makes jokes, but they have no idea what they're mocking. This is this is the ultimate, most serious condition of mankind. And I want to just inform you that the end of your life is not likely to be like it's shown in Hollywood, where you're on your deathbed, sound, surrounded by family and friends, and then you make peace with God. It usually will come on you suddenly when you least expect it. I see this all the time. And your life can change in Five minutes, two seconds, you name it. You can't bank on last-minute repentance. The thief on the cross is not our standard example because you don't know when your end will come. So what do you do? Here's the gospel. God is holy. We have a massive sin problem. Christ is a great Savior. Trust and believe. Trust and believe. All of these things I just told you are a brutal true uncovering of your spiritual condition before God if you are not in Christ. And I, I dread to think about this, and I don't want any of you to be there. But for those that are saved, we have refreshment, right? And I would advise you to, this is why we say, preach the gospel to yourself constantly, not just daily. Daily is not enough. Constantly is the idea test your salvation stay in the word pray always and without ceasing seek wise counsel attend and participate constantly check and realign as necessary your priorities your appetites where do you and how do you spend your time turn from the secular mindset when it comes to vacation what is the secular mindset what does the secular practice encourage i'm going to have me some fun right Let's disconnect from usual life, including church life. That's what the secular mindset tells people. That's why drift happens mostly in the summer and you see it three or four months later because people have gone through all the stages. The stages of drift. I should have called it the stages of drift. That's the secular practice. Go have you some fun. Check out of church life. What's the better practice? What could you, if I had you write it down, this is going to be a test. Take out a piece of paper, get a pencil. Write for me, the better believer-based practice says this. This should be your heart mindset. We're going on vacation. I need to disconnect from the things of the world that keep me from abiding in Christ. This will give me the opportunity to read the books I've collected, to pray longer, and more specifically, to encourage others when I have less of the burdens of daily life on my mind, to read Scripture off and on all day. That should be the mindset of the believer as they, as they have to go away from church. They go out on vacation. Do take vacation. It is absolutely necessary. Absolutely you should, but you should have the believer's mindset. This is an opportunity for me to double down on Christ, not to abandon him. Because if you abandon him, I'm telling you, other things are going to take its place. Other things are going to take the Lord's place, his place. So lastly, again, I've got you trapped here in Sunday school. You can't get away. And so I want to challenge you to do this. I want you to be shocked. I want you to be aware of the truth of your daily life. And my challenge is, Make a diagram. Just do one week and put in each day time amount and captions of how you spend your time every day. You're going to be shocked. And the question I want you to think about is are you giving Christ your best effort? Just do one week. Do one day. Just do one day. And I know, I know, because I live the same life you do, a lot of my day is devoted to the work that I'm called to. And that is part of your Christian walk. You are to give your employer your best effort because you're to do all things as to Christ because you are his and you're his representative. For me, I don't know, the boss is a jerk. I might not get away with that. I'm self-employed, so... I can make that joke. Um, but anyway, if you'll just diagram and be honest like a diary, one week, one day, see where your true loyalties lie and look at the opportunities to drift and and repent, do better. Um, and so, again, here's a quote from John Owen, uh, one of the great old pastors that I love. Um, If we are to recover spiritual life, we must come as near as we can to the source of that life and remain there for as long as we are able. Christ is the spring of our spiritual life. He is in every way our life. And so with that and with it in mind who Jesus really is to us, how can we in good conscience drift away from him? Like we do, we all we all do this. We all do this. You have to have an awareness of it, and then you have to fight against it with the means of grace, prayer, reading the word, you know, um, seeking wise counsel, attending, worshiping, serving. That's the cure, and it needs to be constant. It's not like you're going to build a table from IKEA and walk away and it's done and it's going to stay the same. It never stays the same. It's constant daily challenge. So, again, I, I thank you for uh, having me up here. It's a privilege and honor that I'm obviously not worthy to do, but I am happy to do it. I would love it. And um, there's much, much, much more to say. But I think at this time we'll conclude. Let me just close in prayer as uh, our elders will come down and um you know uh if you need to, need to pray you need to consult with somebody you need to repent you know we're all ears we're all the same we're all one in Christ so come forward and our um our our worship will lead will lead us um we'll have the lord's supper today and uh let me just close by a word of prayer here father god we your people um stand before you today, as being guilty of this drift, it happens on a daily basis. Uh, just pray that you would give us a higher awareness. Give us a nudge from the Holy Spirit. Help us to repent and to commit to do better. That we would concentrate on Your Word. Give us the focus. Tune out the cares of the world, Lord. Tune out the cares of the world and. Increase, give us a hunger to know your word and help us to not only know it and read it, but understand it and implement it, Father. And let our worship be hot. Let it be genuine. Let it be something that we look forward to, that we not drift into sin like David did or like so many people that we've known. I pray that we would stand strong in Christ, that we would encourage one another, that we would walk in love. And I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to um, list some of these true. There are certainly, certainly many more. Um, and I pray that you would, uh, you would be with us now as we come before you to conclude this service. It's in your name I pray. Amen.